Good evening, everyone. Uh, the Bible passage tonight is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 20. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Itria, and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? the crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the th his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod, tetrarch, the tetrarch, because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all, and he locked John up in prison. I've never called Drew Uncle Drew, but I'll know now. Uh, that's, a, that's a great thing. Uh, welcome. Let me add my welcome. My name is Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC, and we're moving through uh, Luke 1 to 5, as you've heard, and we've come to this passage um, that's just been read for us. There's a bit of an outline on the back of the bulletin that may be helpful as we um, dig into these first 20 verses of chapter 3. Uh, but let me pray for us and ask that God will really help us as we 
uh, wrestle with his word tonight, that we might respond rightly uh, to the challenge that's put here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the freedom to come together like this. I thank you that uh, there's great joy in meeting up uh, with those that are seeking to follow you and knowing too that you have given us your word, which is uh, living and active, uh, that it challenges, convicts us, comforts us uh, even today, uh, many centuries after uh, the passage we're considering was written. Uh, Lord, we pray that you might do that great work in those of us who have trusted in your son tonight, that your spirit might challenge us afresh, that we might truly respond to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, waiting expectantly for someone to arrive is something I think that we can all relate to. Uh, whether it's um, a good family, um, uh, a friend, a good friend or a family member that perhaps returning from overseas, you know, you're waiting at the airport for them to come around the corner and see them after a long wait. Or perhaps um, at a surprise gathering, a party where everyone's there waiting for the guest of honour to arrive, the expectation can be really high. And I guess perhaps uh, the ultimate in the waiting game is really the arrival of a firstborn child for a couple. Um, I can remember waiting for the arrival of our firstborn um, in January 2003. My wife Christine and I um, had deliberately not found out whether we were going to be welcoming a boy or a girl. And so there was great, great anticipation. And uh, when Harrison, our firstborn uh, son, arrived on January 18 of that year, it was about 40 degrees um, outside in Sydney. Half of Canberra was on fire. I don't know if you remember the huge fires that swept through swathes of that area in 2003. And amidst all of this turmoil, uh, he was born in the early morning, but with great excitement for our families, great anticipation and expectation that was finally being met with his arrival. Now, I think we can envisage, you know, waiting nine months for the arrival of a child. We might even be able to think about waiting nine years, say, for um, a long-lost friend returning from overseas or a family member who's been away. But when we come to this passage, uh, we're considering a nation that's been waiting 10 centuries for the arrival of the Messiah. I mean, this is in the order of 30 to 40 generations. Uh, King David had been promised way back in 2 Samuel 7 uh, that one in his line would come who would have an eternal kingdom, who would rule forever. And people had been waiting in the nation of Israel from that point on. And in verse 15 of our passage today, we see that they're still waiting expectantly. You notice we read, the people were waiting expectantly. They were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. And this is after four centuries of silence. Remember, God has not spoken since the end of the Old Testament in Malachi through the prophets, and suddenly John the Baptist is here, and yet the people are anticipating the arrival of the Christ. So much so, they're wondering if John is perhaps that person rather than Jesus. And so John needs to clarify his role for them. And it begs the question as we come to this passage tonight, you know, how did John prepare the way for Jesus? How did he prepare the way? That's the question I want us to consider tonight as we look at this first part of Luke 3. And that brings me to the first point, uh, point one on your outline, by fulfilling scripture. The first way that John does this is by fulfilling scripture. Have a look again at verses 2 to 6. We read there, The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. 
he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads will be made straight, the rough ways smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. Well, notice firstly in this opening to chapter 3 that Luke the writer is again keen to sort of place us in the historical timing and setting of what's going on. He's already done that at the start of chapter 1. He's repeated that at the start of chapter 2. Here we are at this chapter 3 and he's doing it for a third time and not just because he wants to bring credibility to his biography of Jesus, to place him uh, rightly in history, but he's also explaining the political and religious landscape that John is about to commence his ministry in. And of course, Jesus who will follow him. Notice that we're told about the far distant ruler in Rome, Tiberius, who is the current Caesar. But then he brings it down to a local scene where he talks about the Roman appointed governor, Pilate, and then the puppet leaders that are a largely Jewish background, Herod's family, uh, ruling under Pilate effectively. And like Herod the Great in the political scene who made sure that his sons ruled after him, we see the same in the religious scene when he finally drills down to that level. Because we get two names suddenly, Annas and Caiaphas. Now the rule is there's only one great high priest. And so you can't have two that are listed. But Luke is absolutely correct because uh, Annas had made sure after his previous reign as the high priest that he handed out that role to his family members in the years that followed. So he firstly gave it to his sons and now to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And so it's into this political and religious intrigue and the fighting for control and power in Jerusalem that John will start his ministry and Jesus will follow. And it's actually into uh, this messy arena uh, that these two men will meet their fate, humanly speaking. They will die at the hands of these local leaders. But actually, God is going to fulfill his plans through them. He's going to fulfill prophecies that have been given way back, centuries before. And so that's why I think this opening section, the main way that John prepares the way for Jesus is to fulfill the scriptures. Now, the one who was to prepare the way for Christ had to come and do just that. That's what the prophet Isaiah said. And so as you read this opening section, you know, verses 4 to 6 are almost a straight quote from Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5, where Luke, taking up that, says, well, here is the fulfillment, that one that was promised in Isaiah 40. Well, John the Baptist is him. There was the promise of one in Isaiah 40 who would come in the wilderness, a voice of one calling, make the way, and of course, we read in verse 3, here is John going out into the wilderness, the area around the Jordan River, preaching to the people. Now, of course, his role doesn't literally involve earth moving. He's not driving a caterpillar. Um, he's, he's not leveling out hills and valleys literally. He's preparing people spiritually. And this is a metaphor. Um, in the original context in Isaiah, uh, it had about the people being prepared for return from exile. But now... Luke is applying it to this greater act of salvation that's coming through John and ultimately the Messiah Christ, uh, where the Jews will be saved from their sins. And so although John's got a particular ministry and he's really focused on Israelites, um, Luke's always got an eye for the Gentiles, us non-Jews, 
And that's a, a focus throughout his gospel because he's writing to Theophilus, remember, a Gentile Roman official. And so in verse 6, he adds on another verse here in his quote. He moves away from Isaiah 40 and he throws in Isaiah 52.10, which widens out the scope to not just the people of Israel, but also all people will see this salvation of the Lord. But John, in his particular role, is preparing God's people to meet their king. The Christ, the anointed one, is the king that will come. But the way he's preparing them is not the usual way we think about getting ready to meet royalty. I'm sure, look, many of you will have seen that famous sketch with the actor uh, Rowan Atkinson uh, playing his favourite character, Mr Bean, where he's going to meet the Queen in a pretty funny scene. You know, he's lining up with a bunch of people who have been serving the royal family, it seems, at some establishment. He's waiting in line to shake hands with her. And, of course, then he's thinking, well, I need to get ready. I need to look my best for royalty. And so he's trying to shine his shoes on the people beside him. You know, he's trying to clean his teeth and create some floss out of nothing in his pocket. You know, he's testing his breath so that he doesn't breathe on her with bad breath. And on and on it goes, annoying everyone in the line. Of course, when she finally arrives, he shakes hand, bows, and knocks her out as he headbutts her. And that's the slapstick ending, uh, Mr. Bean style. But all of it is really conveying to us that, well, you've got to get ready. It's outward appearance when you're meeting royalty. You have to look your best, be prepared and ready to be in their company. But as we read John's example here, how he's going to prepare the people of Israel to meet their king, the contrast couldn't be more stark. John's not interested in outward appearances. He's interested in what's going on inside. He's looking at the heart because that's what God is interested in. It's about the attitudes of the people and the bad actions that are flowing out of that, that he's concerned about, that he's going to speak to them about. And so this was the inward preparation to meet God's king, the promised Christ. And that brings me to a second point. Point two, how does John prepare the way for Jesus? Well, not only does he fulfill scripture, but secondly, he calls people to repentance by calling for repentance. So have a look again from verse seven. Notice how he's pointing the people back to God. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, the summary of John's ministry is in verse 3. It's been given to us already. He's preaching um, a message of baptism for repentance, for the forgiveness of sins. But you see, in Jewish circles, people didn't get baptized. It wasn't a Jewish thing to do. They had little purification, sort of cleansing ceremonies occasionally, but being baptized was not something that happened in Jewish culture. Gentiles got baptized if they wanted to become part of God's people, if they wanted to become part of the Jewish people in their um, worship. And it was self-administered. So if you're a Gentile and you wanted to be coming closer to things, then you, you poured water over yourself. But here, John is administering the baptism. It's in a river and it's being applied to Jews. What would drag all these people out of Jerusalem, pour out to hear him speak and then be baptized when it was so unlike their culture, not what happened? 
Well, it carries a note of urgent preparation, doesn't it? They're preparing for the Messiah to come, but they're also fleeing from the wrath that he brings. Do you notice that? There's a, there's a note of urgent preparation. They're not just seeking ceremonial purification. They're fleeing something that's to come. And so their baptism was a symbol of their repentance, a symbol of their repentance. Now, verses 7 to 14 unpack what John is meaning by this repentance, the repentance that's sought here, and how it would help people to be open to receiving Jesus when he appeared. Four things I want to say about repentance. Firstly, um, we've got to define that term. And in the Greek original language, it means uh, it's metanoia, which means change of mind, to change my thinking. Now, always in Scripture, that doesn't just mean, oh, well, there's a new intellectual ascent or I'm going to think a new thought today. It's a change of mind that will issue in actions that I'm going to live differently as a result. It's a complete about face in my life. It's not simply a feeling of sorrow or remorse. You know, as one commentator, A.W. Tozer famously once said, a thousand years of remorse over a wrong act will not please God as much as somebody who's repentant and lives a reformed life. God's wanting real change. And so when the term repentance or similar phrases are used in the Old Testament, it always conveys a turning back to God, turning away from the sin that I've fallen into and back to God. So if God's about to reveal his Christ or his Messiah, then people need to be ready to receive him. And if they're to be ready, it requires repentance, a change of mind, a change of heart, if you like. Now, secondly, we see in this section that John's call for repentance is a call at this point specifically to Israelites. It will be expanded as Jesus enters into his own ministry. But here it's Israelites that are pouring out. They're going out to the Jordan River, which is in Israel. And it's confirmed by the fact that John's worried about a lot of the people coming out to him. Why? Because he doesn't think they're truly repentant. He doesn't think they're serious about what they're doing. He's calling for a massive turn around in their life but he sees many of them as just being complacent thinking look i have a jewish heritage i'm a son or daughter of abraham it'll be right mate in aussie lingo because well i'm part of the jewish people john says nothing further could be from the truth god can raise up followers of abraham from stones if he wants it's not about being born into the nation and of course the apostle paul was even more famous in um just uh, cutting down that um, sense of inherent rights uh, when he talked about his own life in Philippians chapter 3. Remember that passage in verses 4 to 6 of Philippians 3 where the Apostle Paul says, you know, uh, you don't look to your Jewish credentials. And then he rattles off his. He says, well, you know, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm in regard to the Pharisee, um, in regard to the law, I'm a Pharisee as for zeal. Well, I'm persecuting the church as for legalistic righteousness, I'm faultless. He's effectively saying, look, if you're going to point to your Jewish CV, beat that. You can't. It's not likely. And then he pulls the rug from under such an approach in verses 7 and 8 that follows. And he says, look, I consider all of that rubbish. It's rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus. See, Paul's conviction about his spiritual heritage let alone his human accomplishments, is that they don't rate a mention. You cannot know Christ and respond to him through offering your CV. 
And of course, there's a big application for us in this today. You know, if we're thinking too that even, even partially, that our Christian heritage makes us right before God, that God's impressed because of our background or some area of service, that that will ensure our acceptance rather than his son, then we're greatly mistaken. We've got to repent of that. Just like the Jews in Jesus' day needed to repent of their belief, hey, we're Abraham's kids, it'll all be okay. Look, I could list off to you my spiritual CV too. Born to Christian parents of the tribe of the Congregationalists and then of the tribe of the Baptists. Two tribes, beat that. You know, um, converted age nine by Billy Graham. Baptized when I was 18. Served in this or that in church. Went to Bible college, serving as a pastor. Look, if I were to depend on any of those things for even a moment, I am on the shakiest of ground. God says to those things, so what? Have you repented? Are you trusting in my son? That's all that counts. And so we need to be very clear, as John has been clear with the Jews. See, we can fall into this so easily. People will say, oh, look, my family have been in this church for 40 or 50 years, or, you know, I've got a relative who's a missionary. I've got to be right with God based on those things. It's a danger that will exist for the whole of our Christian life if we've placed our faith in Jesus, that we'll look for some other ground of assurance rather than simply Christ and his work. And it will keep coming up. And God wants to say to all of that, so what? Where do you stand with your faith in my son? If there's a hint of assurance elsewhere, then we're in danger. And so it's something we need to take on board from this passage too. Thirdly, as we think about this word repentance, you know, it implies a change of lifestyle, as I mentioned already. It, it means new actions. And I think our question might immediately be, well, yeah, I want to know if I've got fruit of true repentance in my life. What are you looking for, John? Uh, what's your view of what repentance would look like? And of course, that's what the crowds are asking him in verse 10 as he's rebuking them for coming out to him. I mean, surely he wants them to repent, but he's not sure that their hearts are in the right place. So they say to him, well, what should we do? Uh, what are we to be living like? And in verses 10, 11 to 14, he answers the question, doesn't he? And there's even specific groups like the tax collectors and the soldiers that want a word for them. Now, look, there's no exhaustive list here. And John is certainly not teaching a salvation by works. Do the following things and God will be happy with you. He's saying this is the kind of fruit that shows that somebody has truly repented of their sin. And so he just focuses on the Achilles heel, the weak spot of these groups. So what's the problem with the soldiers? Well, it was that they didn't get paid much in the Roman Empire. And so they often went around beating people over the head and getting more money so that they could up their pay. What was the issue with the tax collectors? Well, the same thing. Let's just collect more than we're supposed to. And then I'll be doing well in life. See, the heart of what he says to them is be content with what you have. Be generous people. Be other-centered rather than self-centered. Such good works show that true repentance is taking place because true repentance will issue in changed relationships with other people. So if you want to tell me tonight, look, I'm in a right relationship with God, and I want to say to you, well, I'll be able to see that in the way that you relate to other people. And that's what John is challenging the people with because that will be evidence of God's grace at work in your life, which is simply a response in love 
to the forgiveness that God has shown you in Jesus. Now, fourthly and finally on this point of repentance, it's a call that applies to everyone. You know, maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, I don't think I need to repent. You know, I'm in a category other than these. I'm not a soldier, not a tax collector. Well, there's somebody in this story that feels just like that. They don't think they need to repent at all. It's at the end of our passage in verses 19 and 20. You know, it's Herod, who is the Jewish ruler of the area. I mean, it's a dangerous role that John the Baptist has because God is calling him to ask all people to repent. Not just the lowly, but even those that think they're at the top of the pile. And he had clearly confronted Herod Antipas about his wrongful marriage to his brother's wife, about a whole bunch of other evil things that aren't even listed for us. What's Herod's response? I don't want to deal with this sense of guilt. I don't want to be confronted with my sin. I'm just going to lock this guy up and then I won't have to hear about it. Well, I want to tell you, Herod is not alone in that kind of response. I think it's often the default response of humanity. And the reason I say that is because we see it at the very start of the Bible. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve take the fruit. What happens after they've made that great failure, that great error? Do they rush to God to repent? God longed for them to do that. No, they ran away and hid from God. Indeed, it's God that comes after them, trying to give them an opportunity to confess, to repent, to come back. And so often we can be the same. Instead of running to God, we run away from him. And so we need to learn, if we've come to faith in Jesus, to keep short accounts, to keep repenting, to keep placing our trust afresh in Christ. And that brings me to a third and final point. Point three, how does John prepare the way for Jesus? Well, not only does he fulfill scripture, not only does he call people to repentance, but lastly, he points people directly to Jesus, says, don't come to me, look at him. So notice how he goes on from verse 15 as the crowd get a little confused about who they should be looking to. Verse 15, the people were waiting expectantly. They're all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. So John answered them all. I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, ready to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. This is a crucial section of our passage. And notice in verse 16 here, the first part of it, uh, he's contrasting his ministry and its importance to Jesus and his importance. John already knows who Jesus is, that a Messiah is coming, that he is far more powerful, and that he, as somebody that the crowds are flocking out to, is someone who is not even worthy to do the lowest of slaves' tasks. You see, there were lots of rabbis and teachers in the first century, and they would gather around them a group of disciples. And some of those disciples would really be treated like, say, slaves, where they would have to do the most menial task for their master. It's a kind of payment. And here, John the Baptist is saying that Jesus is so great that he is not good enough 
to do the most menial task. He is not worthy of untying his sandals. I am so down here, John is saying, and Jesus is so beyond. The superiority of Christ over John. But he also explains the difference in their ministries. What is it that John is doing and what ministry will Jesus exercise? Well, the striking difference in verse 16 and 17 is that, well, Christ is going to baptize with fire and the Spirit, and John simply baptized with water. What's going on there? Well, in the Old Testament, you know, God had promised that a time would come when his Holy Spirit would be poured out on all people, not just the occasional individual, you know, a king like King David or a priest or a prophet. Rather, all those who are God's people who genuinely come to him would receive the Holy Spirit. And those promises start in Numbers chapter 11 and Deuteronomy 5, and they keep growing through the Old Testament. And they climax, as it were, in Ezekiel 36 and 37. And some people would argue Joel chapter 2 as well. You get to Joel 2 and he, he mentions that there'll be this day that is coming when all people will receive the Spirit, old and young, male and female, the important, the unimportant, all people who have come to God. And of course, John the Baptist is one man who knows what these Old Testament promises are referring to. And that's why as the crowds flock around John, he says, let me tell you about the spirit baptizer, the one that we're awaiting. It's such a significant, such a unique claim. No one had ever done this. Who could pour out the spirit on all people? Only the Christ. Of course, it's ultimately a reference to what Jesus would do in the sending of the spirit on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. See, John is predicting that there'll be a real cleansing from the inside out. You know, I'm, I'm covering you in water, which is symbolic of a change of mind. There's someone that can change you truly through the gift of the Holy Spirit to you, and that is the Christ who is to come. The powerful, purifying effect of the Messiah's work through the Spirit. But there's a barb in the tail, did you notice, in this little section. And Christ's unique ministry is one of salvation, and granting of the Spirit, but also judgment. He's indeed the Savior of the world, but he's also the judge of humanity. And so as we read verse 16 and 17, we realize that he baptizes not only with the Holy Spirit, but with fire. And that's unpacked for us in verse 17, did you notice? You know, he arrives to offer real change, but he also divides. He divides those who are his, his true disciples, from those who are not. The winnowing fork is the image, isn't it? It's uh, how they did it to remove the chaff from the wheat, throw it up, the heavier wheat, the good seed that they want to keep will fall to the ground, the chaff is light and it blows away in the wind. So there's this sifting process. And the image here is that the wheat are God's people. They're gathered up. Meanwhile, the chaff representing those who will face judgment, who never turn in repentance, are collected and burnt up. I mean, it's a sobering, harrowing scene, this. These are very powerful words. And this phrase, the unquenchable fire, refers to its ferocity. The idea is that no one will escape this judgment. It's not like you can outrun this fire. If you think you can escape God's judgment and you'll do your own thing and you'll never be touched, John says, no way. I mean, he's already said earlier in the passage, verse 9, the axe is already at the root of the trees 
and every tree that has not produced good fruit will be cut down, thrown into the fire. True repentance must issue in fruit, in outward evidence. Or judgment is looming behind us, as it were, and it's going to overtake us. Now, our world often mocks that idea that there'll ever be a day of account, that judgment is really coming, that every thought and word and deed that I've ever had or uttered will somehow be put under God's microscope. But the Bible couldn't be clearer over and over again that that is exactly what is going to happen. And when Christ returns in all his glory, time is up to repent. The moment has passed and then he receives those who have already turned to him, but judgment falls. And at that point, it's too late. Judgment will have overtaken. I don't know if you remember um, the tragic story back in 1999 uh, of golfer Payne Stewart, a very famous golfer that had won lots of tournaments, had a huge following, was quite a colourful character and he dressed to match that. Um, but he died in a very bizarre incident. He and five companions um, boarded a twin-engine Learjet uh, in Florida, and they were to fly to Dallas. Uh, it was a beautiful sunny day. They took off at like quarter past nine in the morning. No issues. Air traffic control caught up with them just a few minutes into their flight. Everything's perfect, looking good. But shortly after they were due to turn towards Dallas, um, air traffic control could not reach them. There seemed to be some issue. They were worried about what was happening in the plane, and so they scrambled two jets to go up and fly alongside and see what had taken place. And as they managed to pull up beside the plane, they couldn't see anybody at the controls in the cockpit. No one there. And then they realized that some of the windows were already fogged. The plane had depressurized. Um, the freezing stratospheric air at 45,000 feet had entered into the plane. But it's an insidious thing that just sort of seeps in and the people become unconscious and don't really know what has happened. And one of the Air Force pilots who pulled alongside said it's a very helpless feeling to pull alongside another aircraft and realize that the people in the aircraft are unconscious or incapacitated in some way. He said, I'm 50 to 100 feet away from them, but I cannot do anything. One air safety investigator afterwards said, depressurization is very insidious indeed. He explained, it could just slowly deprive the crew of oxygen and their ability to know even what was happening. It's one of those things, he said, you could be feeling good one minute, you're feeling happy, and then you don't know what's going on. Well, I want to put it to you tonight that we need to picture all of humanity like a runaway plane. The time is running out. The oxygen is depleting, as it were. And there's an opportunity to respond in repentance to the offer of salvation that God holds out for us. But there's a judgment that's looming that must come from somebody who is right and holy and will differentiate between those who respond and those who reject his love. And humanity is so often caught up in their pursuits. It's like, well, this will never happen. Look at the world. Everything seems to go on as it did yesterday. I'm just pursuing my dreams and whatever I want to do. Who says that this great day of judgment is coming? 
We don't see the urgency of our plight. See, I think from this passage tonight, the main way that John the Baptist is preparing people that they might receive Jesus is to call them to repentance, to say that you really need to turn away from living for yourself to thinking you're in charge and to acknowledge your need of God. See, to become a Christian, to receive the Holy Spirit, you have to repent first. You can't say, I trust in Jesus, but I'm going to keep living as I did before. If we say that, we haven't understood the gospel of grace. We must first repent. Our sin is a great offense before God, who will not overlook it or turn a blind eye, but who will call it to account. But the wonderful thing is, the one who is the judge of all humanity is also the one who has laid down his life for us. The Christ, the King who came. And he says, I'll bear your punishment. I will go to the cross and take what you deserve, that if you place your trust in me, that you might go free. You shelter in me so that the wrath of God does not fall on you, but rather it's absorbed, exhausted in my body on the cross. Well, I want to ask you the question, therefore, have you truly repented? Is there evidence in your life, real fruit, that you have truly turned back to God? Or are you playing deadly games with God, pretending like everything's okay, but you know that you're really not living for God. You're just living for yourself. It's not one of those questions where you can say later, gee, you know, I'm sorry I made that decision. It's not one where remorse or regret will do. This is a life and death decision. God calls for a real about face. And so we need to be repentant if we're truly to receive King Jesus because he certainly will come and he will judge the living and the dead. And so the day of salvation is now. The time to turn in repentance is right here. Will you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you don't leave us guessing as to what you want us to do. Lord, indeed, you went to the great lengths of sending your only son that he might be born as a helpless baby, grow up and live a perfect life so that he could therefore be our substitute, the one that could take our place as one who was unblemished, who could then bear our sin, exhaust your wrath so that it may not fall on us. Lord, we thank you for your great love and mercy shown in the sending of your son, we thank you even more than that, that you are so keen for people to respond that you did not want them to miss your son. And so you sent a bright neon sign, as it were, in John the Baptist to prepare the way so that no one would miss what you were doing through the Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray tonight, if there are any here who have been depending on something other than Jesus, that you would cause them to see the wonderful offer you provide for us in your son. And if we've never come to that point of even realizing our need, Lord, I pray that you might help us to truly see that you do call us to repent, that we've got to acknowledge our sin, our need of forgiveness, but that you'll all too readily show us mercy if we turn to you. For you have paid the price already in your son. We pray in his name. Amen.